Well, will Christmas be better this year? Christmas 2020 was pandemic Christmas, but what about this year? What would make Christmas 2021 better for you? Better presents, better time with family, better food and decorations, better health, maybe? No. Omicron, Omicron, (laughs) no family drama, no travel bans or masks, maybe. You know, pandemic aside, for many of us, Christmas in the future will never be better. The holidays conjure up difficult memories. Uh, Christmas has a way for many of us to bring out the worst in us. And so on Christmas, we remember that fight. We remember when that family member or even we ourselves stormed out, slammed the door. We remember that disappointment, that discouragement, that phone call. Or we remember that loss, that person that we no longer celebrate with. And so for many of us, Christmas equal, a better Christmas equals just getting to the other side of the holiday and into the new year without too much heartache. There's a lot of pressure when it comes to Christmas, both good and bad. Christmas releases a lot of pressure for us. But in the next five weeks here at Hinson, we plan to bring you five messages from God's word that we pray will give you a better Christmas and a better New Year. How how can I say that? How can I be hopeful of that? Well, Christmas isn't about us, is it? A better Christmas begins with a person whose name is literally in the holiday. We know he's the reason for the season. But have you considered lately how this person gives us a better identity? A better word, a better reign, a better sacrifice, and a better promise. He's the man, the prophet, the priest, the king, the covenant-keeping God, whose word pierces through the Christmas glow and the jingle of carols. He offers us a gift that we must not take for granted in a life that can't be ignored And good news that even if we've heard it thousands of times before, we must continue to hear, to listen, and to build our lives around these good tidings of great joy. Now, he is the reason alone that we can have a better hope as opposed to the hopes and the dreams that we so often find ourselves settling for at this time of year or every time of year. So, friends, the center of... Christmas is not us and how happy we will be this Christmas season. Christmas is about a better person and how his different roles and words to us make all the difference. So today we begin our Advent series, if you haven't guessed it already, called A Better Christmas. And today's sermon is entitled A Better Man. Now you can see the schedule that we plan to bring you from what text the next five Sundays in the pews in front of you. 
I'd invite you to check those out, be reading the text ahead of time to prepare your heart to hear from God's word. And right now, I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5 in your Bibles as we consider this better man's life and work and what in the world it has to do with us today. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. You can find it in your Bibles on page 1001. 1001. Romans 5, 12 through 21 invites us to receive the better man. That's my simple main point for us today. Receive the better man. And particularly, I'd invite you to receive his better act, A-C-T, his better life, L-I-F-E, his better gift. So those are my three points, a better act, a better life, and a better gift. As usual, I'd invite you to keep your Bibles open as we look at Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. It's going to help you today to be in your Bibles, especially because I'm going to be moving through the text a little more thematically than sequentially. So let's begin with a better act. So in Romans 5, 1 through 11, Paul, the Apostle Paul, has just told us the good news of what God has done in the death of Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, believers are reconciled to God and know peace with him. And they're saved from their sins. And then Paul rolls in with Romans 5.12. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. So beginning here in Romans 5.12, Paul begins to paint a very dark backdrop to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's going to highlight for us this better man, Jesus Christ, but by a historical and theological comparison and contrast. You know, when our family moved to Oregon ten and a half years ago, people wanted to know if we were going to be beavers or ducks, right? Who would we go for? Who would we identify with? We were given apparel for uh, both teams, for both schools. My kids ended up identifying with the beavers. Ashley and I don't care. (laughs) But Paul isn't trying to convince the, the church in Rome that he's writing to to go for a particular sports team. He wants them to receive the better man, to identify with the better man. So he's going to make an argument of why one man is better than the other man. He's going to compare two men who represent all of humanity. You're either in man number one's camp or man man number two's camp. So who are you going to identify with? Who's your man? Let's consider man number one. Look at Romans 5.12 again. I guess we shouldn't call him man number one, but one man. We're not given his name or any background information yet, uh, because more important than this man, this one man's identity is what he did. His act has cosmic consequences. His act is more significant than the dropping of the atomic bomb or the invention of antibiotics. What he did all those years ago affects you and me every day, every moment of every day, really. So what did he do? We'll look at Romans 5.12 again. 
he introduced sin into the world. Sin entered the world through one man. And by introducing sin into the world, he awakened the monster, death. Death spread like a sickness infecting all people. Isn't that what you see? It's like a zombie apocalypse and everybody's been bitten. But this isn't a work of fiction. It's not a mythical, logical, like, legend that helps us make sense of the world. This one man was a real person who lived in time and space. And death really did come screaming into the world through this one act of sin. So Paul breaks off his thought at the end of verse 12. In the original, there's not actually a period after verse 12. And he's going to pick up this idea in verses 18 and 19. So skip down to verses 18 and 19 and read it for us now. 518. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So do you see why I entitled this point a better act? You see, Paul is comparing the one trespass or the one sin, what we considered in 512 and here in 518, to one righteous act. So the first act, the first act of sin is also called one trespass or disobedience. In 5.18 and 19, the result is not only death that we consider in 5.12, but it's condemnation. Did you see that? Condemnation. The second act, the one righteous act, is an act which means justification, the opposite of condemnation, leading to life for everyone. But what were these acts? And who are the actors? Like the ghost of Christmas past now, I will whisk us away to the drama, drama and tragedy of act one or one act slash act one. And I've entitled act one. Thanks for everything, Adam. One act action. Imagine paradise there in paradise. We see one man and one woman. Why do we care about these people? Who are these people? Well, they're our relatives. They are the first Man, the first and woman who ever lived. They're the first human beings. There had to be a first. And they have just decided that they think a snake's word is more reliable and trustworthy than the word of God that created them and that created everything that they see. Uh, this God and Lord of creation uh, gave them authority, this man and woman authority to rule over his creation to enjoy his good creation and perfect paradise. But God warned them that if they disobeyed his good word, that they would die. But they believed their truth as opposed to God's truth. They listened to the serpent. They were deceived. And they acted on their truth and ate of the tree in disobedience to God's clear command. In the, and that's the language of Romans 5.19, right? disobedience. All right, as we conclude act one slash one act, you get a montage of suffering and wickedness, war, genocide, death, all the evil that you can imagine and more. Maybe act one just concludes before the curtain closes with the image of a baby crying alone. This is what one act leaves us with. We're born into this world that we know all too well. 
It's a world that's cursed. So thanks for everything, Adam. His one act dooms us and brings condemnation. But you may ask, what, how, really, I mean, how could one act so long ago affect our lives today? Well, I think this is true in our experience to consider how today, if one man is unfaithful to his wife, what that unfaithfulness can do, the consequences that can have for the children and even the children's children, the grandchildren not yet born. You know, so often we like to think of our rebellion against God as something that we can control, something that is contained, but our sin goes out into the future and wreaks havoc on people not even born. When we give in to lust, greed, selfishness, pride, it's like we're building time bombs, and we don't know how far into the future those decisions, those choices will go and explode in a mess on people that we don't even know because of one bad decision. So if our sin can go into the future and have consequences like time bombs, how much more Adam's sin? Because the more authority that someone has, the greater the consequences of that person's sin, right? We know this, when a, when a leader sins, the greater the consequences in a church or a president or a CEO. Well, Adam, what was he given? The entire world. He was made the vice regent of all of creation under God. The world was given to him as a stewardship by the king of creation, and Adam used the authority that God had given him to rebel against the king the king of creation, and his word that had created everything. And that time bomb of a choice of Adam plunged our world into disarray, into a downward spiral of sin and death. You know, if you're a non-Christian here today, we are so glad that you are here. You are always most welcome here. I wonder what you think of all this. Does it sound like something from like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? One, since I don't blame you. These things sound very foreign to our experience and our life today. But where do you think those works of fiction, those truths that we see in those works of fiction come from? Where do those ideas come from? There's something that resonates in those works of fiction with us because there's something that's true. Consider for a minute how the, the theology that Paul is writing about in Romans 5 makes sense of the world that we know today. You know, Romans 5, 12, and 18 and 19, they clearly teach the doctrine of original sin. Now, I don't know what you think about the doctrine of original sin, that we're born sinners, that we aren't sinners because we commit sins, but fundamentally we sin because we are sinners. I don't know what you think of that, but this is our legacy. It really makes sense of the state of injustice and the world that we see today. You know, one theologian made the comment that the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the entire Bible. It's the only teaching of the Bible that we like see played out right in front of us, like the doctrine of the Trinity. Outside of the Bible, it's hard to prove that. But, you know, the doctrine of original sin, just babysit a toddler for a day. 
And, and that, that kid comes by it honest, you know, as cute as that little kid is and innocent as he seems, no one has to teach that kid to be selfish, to cry, to get his way, to, to use others for his gain. You know, we are the way that we are. The world is the way that it is because we are born in Adam. Adam passed down this family resemblance to us. We mistrust authority naturally. Yes, authority abused doesn't help, but we're born kind of suspicious of authority. We go our own way. We trust our judgment, our truth over God's word. And when something looks good and nobody's watching, yeah, we're gonna, we'll, we'll take it, even if it isn't ours. Adam's one fateful choice so long ago has changed the world as we know it. Well, with this backdrop painted, this dark backdrop painted, we're now ready for Act 2, entitled, seriously, thank you for everything, Jesus. Literally everything. This is the one righteous act that we see in Romans 5.18. So the stage lights go dark, and a single spotlight shines on one solitary man, ordinary looking, and he's praying. He too is in a garden. There's men at a distance sleeping. It's an intense scene. This man is is sweating as he's praying. Drops like blood are falling from his forehead. And then we hear his cry in the garden. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And then in fast motion, again, like a montage, we see his arrest his trial before the courts, his conviction. He's whipped, he's stripped, and he carries a wooden cross and dies between two common criminals. This act one led to the death and misery for everyone, including Jesus Christ, the God-man. But Paul argues that that prayer that that life of obedience, that that going to the cross by the second man leads to justification, to life that makes everyone who is in him righteous. This is why Christmas matters. The king of creation broke into our world in the weakness of human flesh, just as we've been singing about This morning, he's Emmanuel, God with us. He lived under this cursed world that Adam brought about. The second man, he felt loss, hunger, frustration, the temptations of the world and the devil. And despite all of this, as opposed to Adam and every single one of us, he listened to God's word and he obeyed. He he lived the righteous life that Adam and you and I have not, could not. And then this one man died under the curse of Adam. He tasted the consequence of Adam's action. But by his obedience, we see the many are made righteous. This one act of obedience by this one man, overcomes, overwhelms Adam's disobedience. So once again, 
non-Christian friend in the room, would you like to be a part of this many who are made righteous that we see in these verses? Naturally, we're born into Adam and his first act of sin. His act leads to condemnation. We disobey the Lord in our hearts, in our, in our minds, in our speech, in our actions. And we start doing that from a very early age. But today, you can receive the act of this better man and have your life turned upside down in a wonderful way, painful way, but a way that will lead to life and righteousness. How do we do that? How do we receive this better act of righteousness? We receive it by turning from our sin, from turning from our life of sin. We're not made perfect but we trust and identify with the second man in his righteousness. The Bible calls this repentance and faith. We trust on his action on our behalf. We trust God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And then we know peace with God, reconciliation, as Paul talks about in verses 1 through 11. And no longer do we know the condemnation that comes from our sin. When you feel guilt and shame, it comes from Adam. Thanks a lot, Adam. And it comes from our sin, just as we sin in Adam. You know, Martin Luther calls the righteousness that God gives us in Christ, and then we give our condemnation and unrighteousness to Christ. He calls that trade the sweet exchange. The sweet exchange. It's also known in, uh, by theology nerds as the imputed righteousness of Christ. Christ t- makes us righteous by imputing, that is giving us his righteousness. He takes on our unrighteousness and on the cr- when Christ died on the cross, condemned for our sin. You know, I, I called the second act of, of Christ's righteous act, you know, thanks for everything, Jesus. But seriously, Do we thank him for this? Have you thanked Christ for his righteous life that has been credited to your originally bankrupt account? What would it mean, not just to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, I forgot to do that recently. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. What would it mean to live a life of gratitude for the righteousness of Christ, the righteous act? of Christ credited to your account to live in the joy of the sweet exchange turning our condemnation in for Christ's righteousness what would that look like be something good to talk about over lunch I have just one way Uh, uh, I see in you all this I see this life of gratitude for Christ's righteousness pulsating in the life of this body Um, you know as one of the pastors here I have the privilege and the joy of meeting up with many of you for all kinds of reasons. Um, but I do have to say that I am so encouraged when a few of you are brave enough to meet with me or I hear of you meeting with another brother and sister here in the congregation to confess your sin. You know, as a pastor, I'm not a priest. I can't pardon you. I'm not going to do some ritual for you. Uh, But when we confess our sin to one another, to brothers and sisters, we are declaring that's not who I am anymore. 
we are declaring that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We are saying how thankful we are for the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin um, and that makes us righteous. Uh, So we are forgiven and reconciled in Christ. I think we so often forget this in our guilt and shame, in our sin. We, 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 are, we, become, we, we become inward focused. And yet repentance and confession is one of the best opportunities to receive this better act of Christ, to rejoice in what we have in the gospel. We remember, rejoice, and thank God for God's better act in Christ that overcomes that selfish choice that we made that lustful choice that we made, that greedy choice that we made, and all our proud acts. So as we continue in this lifestyle of confessing our sins, turning from our sins, it is the best opportunity to rejoice in the better act of Jesus that makes us righteous. There's no need to be afraid or ashamed if we are in Christ. So Christ's righteousness, his act, is the basis for all our hope, And it's the basis for our life. And that's what we're going to consider next, of what it means to receive his better life here in the second point. So point number two, a better life. So what we just considered is uh, Christ's better act on the cross is the work that now defines us. It defines our identity as opposed to Adam's act. But now we see that it will not just be our identity that's reshaped by Christ's obedience, but the whole course of our life is reshaped by the life of this better man. So let's look back up at Romans 5, 13 and 14. Look at Romans 5, verse 13. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. So in this passage, Paul brings up the law at two different points, and we're going to consider both of those points here in this point, in point number two. The Jewish Christians, they love them some Mosaic law. They love to eat kosher and uh, to think about the Ten Commandments and circumcising their boys on the eighth day. This is what they were all about. So the law was life. Uh, Paul makes two statements, though, here in Romans 5.13. One, well, there was sin before Sinai, before Moses gave, received the law. But also, Paul concedes a point to his fellow Jews. He says, yes, without the law, technically there is no crime. Right, we, we get this. Paul says, okay, I hear you. That's a good point. But then he, he comes in with verse 14. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. What Paul's saying here in Romans 5.14 is even without the law, we're all guilty. Even if we don't transgress an explicit command of God, like Adam did in the garden, well, we're still under the reign of sin and death. The law of God has been written on our hearts, and we still break it anyways. But Adam's life of sin that leads to death is not the only life that Paul wants to talk about. So Adam is a type or a pattern of the coming one. That's what we see at the end of verse 14. That brings us to verses 20 through 21. So look down at verses 20 through 21. The law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign 
through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, the Jews were right in a sense. The law is life, uh, but not how they thought. Uh, This is probably one of the most revolutionary things that the Apostle Paul ever said as a Jew. He says the law came about to multiply the trespass. The law multiplies the sin. Uh, We know that the law is good. I mean, it is God's word. But as one commentator that I'm related to uh, remarked, said, sin takes the law into its orbit so that the law becomes the means of more sin. Let me say that again. Sin takes the law into its orbit so that the law becomes the means of more sin. Friends, we don't need more law. We need more grace. Uh, We need grace to multiply and overcome all those legalistic tendencies that we have. One living according to the law could even say what I was saying there at the end of that first point on a better act about confession and repentance and make that into a new law. Like if, oh, I'm not doing that enough, and then it brings discouragement and spiritual death. God offers a better life, a better life than living according to the law, according to do better, be a better Christian. No, we need a better righteousness than our best efforts. So do you want some of this eternal life that's found in Jesus Christ our Lord that we see here in verse 21? Then receive him, not merely as your Savior, but each day as the Lord of grace. The Lord of grace. I wonder, Henson members, what do you think? Is grace reigning here at Henson? Is grace reigning here at Henson? Or does it sometimes feel like a law is reigning? You know, is, is our life together characterized by this multiplying grace? You know, I think one way that we can be a, a part of seeing grace multiply here in our church family is pretty simple. Extending a lot of grace to one another. Extending a lot of grace to one another. You know, it can be easy to be hard on one another. To be judgmental in our thoughts when someone has a different lifestyle and makes different choices that aren't necessarily sinful. We can be judgmental, even judge them in our hearts. We can hold one another to a standard that we ourselves have a difficulty keeping. You know, I I was talking to a friend the other day, um, and we were talking about the upcoming challenge of parenting teenagers. And he said he received this good advice from a mutual friend who is a wise Christian dad of teenagers. And he said just this one simple thing that struck me. He said, when it comes to parenting teenagers, give them a lot of grace. Give them a lot of grace. Parents whether your kids are young or teenagers or adults, are you giving your kids a lot of grace? Undeserved favor? Kids, listen up. Your parents need a lot of grace. Your parents are not Jesus. They may be in Christ. They might have the identity of Christ, but they are not perfect. So kids, don't hold your parents to a standard 
that you yourself cannot keep. And in the life together here at the church, let's ask God to help us have grace multiply and reign here. And reign through righteousness. Did you see that in these verses? Grace is not excusing unrighteousness. It's not belittling sin. But a grace that comes from Christ results in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you want to pray something for this church, this is a great prayer here in these two verses at the end of this passage. That grace would reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Truth and grace together in a church family. That would be a fantastic prayer. Well, we receive this life of grace, this better life that comes through Christ, this eternal life through the better man. And we conclude this morning in this text by considering what it means to receive the better gift from the better man. So finally, a better gift. Look with me now at Romans 5, 15, and 16. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin. Because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Did you see here in these verses how Paul is saying how the gift is not like the trespass slash the one man's sin in two main ways. I think we could summarize these two ways as uh, it's not the gift is not like the trespass in the power and the results. Verse 15 is the power. So consider the power of this gift that's more powerful than the trespass. The trespass is crazy powerful. Death is very powerful. If you can meet, if you've ever met someone who claims that they can conquer sin on their own or that they figure out a way to beat death, I'll call you a liar. But as powerful and as pervasive as sin and death are, this gift is stronger. Sin and death spread like a disease infecting all of us. But one of Paul's favorite phrases is But how much more? How much more? If sin and death are powerful, how much more? This gift of God. Another phrase that Paul has used twice so far, I don't know if you've noticed it, is this idea of overflowing. He doesn't talk about sin and death overflowing. Yes, sin sin spreads, it infects. But then in comes the grace of God, which overcomes that infection through the better man. The infections washed away by the overflowing, abundant nature of this gift. You know, as many of you all know, Ashley and I have three kids. So Ashley and I know how quickly our house can go into a state of disorder. Even without kids, maybe this is your experience in your home. It's easy to have a messy room. It's easy, much easier to destroy and make something crooked than it is to straighten something out that is messy. It takes a lot longer to clean a room than to make it messy, if you've noticed. This is the natural state of things. This is destruction. Kids, 
if you want to impress your friends later, you can say that um, you learned a new concept at church today, if you don't already know this one. This is the law of entropy. The law of entropy. That, that's the law probably of your rooms. What, what the law of entropy is that left in a natural state, everything goes into a state of disorder. I think this is what Paul's talking about here in verse 15 and 16. But the gift of grace, only God could do this. Only God could reverse the curse. It's negentropy. It reverses the curse. It reverses entropy. So I wonder, fellow Christian brothers and sisters, is your, would you say that your spiritual life, that your walk with Christ is kind of in a state of entropy? Like you feel like you've kind of slacked off as a Christian. You aren't as zealous as you once were. Don't read the Bible like you used to. You don't have the same love for God's word and the church as you did one day. What's, how, are you, how is that going to change? Try harder? That would, that would be the law that we thought about earlier. The fuel of negentropy is grace. It's receiving this gift. Grace is also a discipline. Meditating on this grace. Receiving this grace in joy. You know, if you're looking for a good book to read in the new year, or even as we conclude this one, uh, one book that I've recommended many times on this, on this subject of, of grace and effort is The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. I'd highly recommend it. It's really helped me better understand how, what it means to live, to receive the gift of God's grace and not to fall into entropy in the spiritual life. Well, this gift of Christ is powerful. Don't look for a power inside of yourself, but look to the power that comes from Christ that overwhelms the trespass of Adam. The gift is better, Romans 5.15, because it's stronger. His righteousness is better than Adam's unrighteousness. And then what we see in verse 16 is the gift is also better because of its result. The result is better, to say the least. Sin, what does that lead to? Judgment, condemnation. And this makes sense to us. Especially when it's someone else, when someone else is messed up. Oh, that person deserves. Uh, this is law and order. This is justice. Judgment and condemnation are what we deserve for the ways we have rebelled against God, our Creator and Lord. And yet, strangely, ironically, in pride, we still like to earn things. But because we're born in Adam, we have earned judgment, condemnation, eternal punishment. But the result of grace... This gift of grace. It's like, imagine standing before the judge of all the earth and having all your sins from your entire life, your sins that you thought, the things that you've spoken that have been unkind or hateful, the, the, the bad things that you've done, and they're just listed off one after the other before all the court. And then the judge says, after each of your crimes is read before the court, not guilty. After one, one after the other. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Thanks to Christ's overflowing gift, we are declared not only innocent, but justified, declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ. You know, we, we like the idea of grace. We're like, that sounds good. Sign me up. 
But let grace have its result today. Let's let grace have its end result today. Let's receive the grace by, as we talked about earlier, walking in repentance and faith. Let's graciously and wisely and humbly point out sin, even in one another's life. For if we pretend that we are all good and basically good people, and if we pretend that nothing is wrong with our brothers and sisters, that they're, they're, they're doing fine, they don't need anything pointed out to them, maybe a blind spot, then what do we need this overwhelming grace for? Right? So talk today, maybe at lunch, this, this needs to be done sensitively, especially in our culture today, about how grace, the gift, receiving the gift of grace gives us the freedom to both encourage one another with evidence of grace. Now, for, this, for every like one correction, we should be giving ten encouragements, generally speaking. But get, what does it look like to give affirmation, encouragement, and correction in a church family? We're never going to grow in grace if, we don't, if others don't point out our blind spots. When we receive rebuke from a fellow Christian even if it's incorrect or they're not seeing the whole picture, that's grace. Do you believe that? Is that how you respond when you're, when you're corrected, maybe even in your spiritual life? Do you think, wow, that person loved me enough to point out an area of my life um, that was not in accord with God's word? You know, let's love one another enough to give gifts of grace, encouragement and correction. Uh, this is very difficult to do well, especially, like I said, in our culture. But this is what Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Well, grace, the gift of grace wasn't the reward for our good behavior. Like we often think, quite the opposite. As Paul says earlier in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, while we were enemies of God. But God's grace is the gift given as the reward for Christ's obedience. And so we can live not fearing what others think of us. So even if we're, we feel like we're being corrected like nine times out of ten, we're not so concerned about what other people think of us or if we're seen as good Christians or successful in our careers or good parents. For it's Christ who justifies us, not other people's opinions. So brothers and sisters, have you known the freedom of receiving this gift of grace so that you're not so affected by the words or the opinions of others? Well, let me convince you with one final verse in Romans. Let me seek to persuade you that this gift is better by looking at Romans 5.17. Look at Romans 5.17. I think this verse is a great summary for this passage. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Do you notice who's reigning now? Earlier I said, let's let grace reign at Henson. Believers, 
reigning through Christ. Those who've received this grace, this gift, will reign in life through the better man, Jesus Christ. And we reign not by like living this victorious Christian life where we pretend that there's no indwelling sin in us and that there's no problem with us. But as one Puritan put it so well, we live knowing that there is more grace in God than there is sin in us. Yes, we are sinners, but God's grace is greater than all our sin. Yes, we are sinners, but his mercy is more. So why, why wouldn't we receive this gift? We couldn't earn it in a million years. But it's overflowing from the cross. It's freely given. It overflows to sinners, self-righteous, religious sinners. It overflows to rebels coming out of the world, living for themselves. So friends, let's be done with that first man. He's dumb. We're dumb. Death is so painful. Sin is so powerful. But the mercy, the grace of this better man is more. So receive the overflow of this grace today, friend. If you have not known this grace, if this grace hasn't transformed you, receive it in faith. Don't waste any more time. Your pride is getting you nowhere good. You know, throughout this text this morning, we have seen this idea of reigning. It's all throughout the text. The reign of sin and death at the beginning. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. And we know that death reigned from Moses then to Herod. But a king was born one night. In Bethlehem, he seemed helpless. Herod tried to secure his own reign by putting to death the boys in Bethlehem, two and under. Herod's reign was a reign of death. But this better man in God's providence lived. He came to give us a gift. He came to accomplish a better act than that first man. And he came to offer his life for ours. He came that we might receive the overflow of his grace and the gift of righteousness and reign in this life through Christ. So I wonder, as you look at Romans 5.17, do you feel like you're reigning today? You know, most of us, if we're honest, just trying to get by, trying to survive. But those who reign, Relish the gift of God's grace that is greater than our sin. We rejoice that when God looks upon us, he doesn't frown. He doesn't say, oh, I wish my son or daughter was doing better. But he sees that gift of righteousness that is ours in Christ. And he smiles. He sings over us with his love. And we share in his life today and forever. So let's let grace reign here at Henson. Let grace reign in your lives each day when you give God the glory through Christ for his righteousness, not your own. Grace reigns when we receive the better act, the better life, and the better gift from the better man, Jesus Christ. Now, you may receive a number of gifts this Christmas, but there is no better gift than Christ the better man. So will you receive him today by walking and repentance?
and trust in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are astounded that you would go to such lengths for sinners such as us. That you would lift us up to reign with you in the heavens. All because of your grace. All because of the righteousness that you have given us through your Son. So Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in this grace, in this gift. Lord, we pray that you would reign in us and over us forever. That you would bring your kingdom so that our faith might become sight. We pray that you would rule in our hearts and that grace would reign here at this church. So Lord, we we thank you that you are the Lord of our lives. And that come what may, we know you sit on your throne. And Lord, the gates of hell will not prevail against your people who you have called by your name. So Lord, we, we praise you for this. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.